Before we dive into today's study, let me make two quick announcements. Number one, our last Go and Do event will uh, begin this Saturday, but not conclude this Saturday. On, on Saturday, December the 4th, we're going to be going out to a particular apartment complex that we're going to distribute food to in, in, in another week. And we're going to go pass out flyers to those who are in that community, in, in, inviting them to come out a week from Saturday, this Saturday to, uh, to participate in that meal or to be given that meal. So if you'd like to come be a part of that uh, phase of this last Go and Do event, that's this Saturday, December the 4th. We're going to meet in the upper room at 1230 and go out to this uh, apartment complex. And we're going to pass out flyers to let people know that we're coming a week from Saturday to pass out a free meal. And so you're welcome to come join us for that. I also want to let you know that next, excuse me, next Sunday, December the 5th, is what we're calling Refine Sunday. Now, we haven't done this yet. You may realize that we have Charge Weekend in January. We had something this year that we called Focus Sunday in April of 2021. And we had Harvest Weekend back in August. Well, we always intended to have four of these weekends. And the fourth is called Refine. And it's supposed to take place at this time every year, but the pandemic kept us from having it last year. Refine Sunday is an in-house uh, focused study that revisits what we've done in the past year and casts our vision for the coming year. So this coming Sunday, we're going to have a special Bible class here in the auditorium. All of our adult classes, and I believe our BYG will be joining us in here. Jay and Ben are going to collectively be teaching that class. And then for worship that morning, I have a special lesson planned that will present our theme for next year and, and some of our plan of work for the coming year. So please make plans to join us this coming Sunday for that. After our morning worship, we're going to have a fellowship meal, a potluck, a dinner on the ground, whatever you want to call it. So make plans to stick around and, and enjoy some food with us. And then at one o'clock, we'll have our evening service. So there will be no 6 p.m. service next Sunday, December the 5th. There will be a 1 p.m. service instead, and that will be a prayer-focused service that I think will be very uplifting for you. Our elders will be leading that, so please make plans to be here uh, for next Sunday, which we call Refine Sunday, as we kind of look back at things that we've done this year as a congregation, and we cast our vision for the upcoming year, and we thank God in the process. So make plans to join us for that. Remember, it will be a potluck Sunday and a 1 p.m. service rather than a 6 p.m. service. With that being uh, said, let's turn our attention to the ninth chapter of Acts. And I want to start with this. Do you know how many of Jesus' miracles involved him healing somebody? There's about 16 different healing miracles in the Gospels. Now, that does not include those occasions where he exercised a demon. That does not include those occasions where he... Uh, brought somebody back from the dead, and that does not include the occasions where he performed some natural miracle like feeding the 5,000, walking on water, or calming a storm. There are 16 different healing miracles. That's where he cured some physical ailment, some malady, some illness that inflicted someone. And of those 16 different healing miracles, there's only nine different ailments. 
nine different diseases, nine different conditions. That means that some of the medical issues that Jesus healed were repeated. That he healed that condition multiple times. Do you know what physical malady Jesus healed most frequently? Blindness. Debbie Bonadies was right. She wants you to know that. She really doesn't want you to know that. She wanted me to know that. Blindness. There are at least five different healings of people who are blind. You can read about Jesus healing two blind men in Matthew chapter 9. You can read about him healing a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute in Matthew chapter 12. There was the blind man of Bethsaida in Mark chapter 8, as well as Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, and a man born blind in John chapter 9. Five different specific healings of people who were blind. In addition to that, we're told that great crowds came to Jesus, bringing with him, among other things, the blind, in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 30. And we're told in Luke chapter 7 and verse 21 that he healed many, many who were blind. I've always been fascinated at the fact that the number one medical healing Jesus performed dealt with blindness. Because I, I think there is some symbolism there that shouldn't go unnoticed. Maybe the reason Jesus so frequently remedied physical blindness was to expose our need for better spiritual vision. And I believe no one understood this better than a guy named Saul who would later come to be known as Paul. See, here in Acts chapter 9, Saul was on his way to Damascus to capture Christians under the authority of the high priest. At this point in time, Saul was the primary persecutor of the church. Back in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, we learn that he approved of Stephen's execution. And in Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, we're told that he was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Now we arrive in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. And Luke <coughs> begins the chapter by telling us that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But he's upped his persecution game at this point. In Acts 8, he was just targeting Christians in Jerusalem. But now in Acts chapter 9, he's chasing them down in Damascus. He's actually gone to the high priest. He's received documents that give him permission to arrest any Christian he finds outside of Jerusalem in the area of Damascus, and he can arrest them, and he can bring them back to Jerusalem and make them stand trial before the Sanhedrin. Paul actually recounts this part of his life in the later section of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, verse 10 and 11. Here's what he admits to in Acts chapter 26. He says that he locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, he says that he cast his vote against them. And he punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to, take, tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury, he said, in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
Paul's goal, according to what he wrote in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14, was to destroy the church. But then, as he was on his way to Damascus, the light of the world, as Jesus called himself in John chapter 8 and verse 12, the light of the world confronted Saul on that road. Saul explains in his retellings of this event in Acts 22 and Acts 26 that about noon, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone around him. And as a result, he fell to the ground. And then if you look here in Acts chapter 9 at verse 4, Saul explains that he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the voice answered him saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. In the aftermath of this encounter, Acts chapter 9 and verse 8 says that Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He then spent the next three days without sight and fasted until a guy named Ananias showed up to tell him what to do. In summary, the one who was known for restoring sight when he encountered the blind took the sight of Paul when he encountered him. And today, as we examine the section of Acts chapter 9, I want to consider what Jesus was doing to and for Paul when he blinded him. I want to consider why Saul had to be blinded in order to become Paul. And so that will be our focus today. Because I think some of us deal with the same issues that Saul dealt with that necessitated his blinding here. And here's the first thing that I think might be the case. I think that Saul was blinded in order to shift his devotion. I want you to notice something about Saul. This guy is extraordinarily passionate. This guy is extraordinarily devoted to his Lord. He loves God entirely. See, there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that Saul wouldn't do for his God. He would even kill people for his God. Now, I'm not trying to um, glamorize or glorify Saul's actions here. He disregarded God's sanctity of life principle. But for Saul, that's how passionate he was. It can be hard for us to wrap our mind around Saul's persecutions as a demonstration of his love for God, but that's exactly how Saul viewed it at the time. If you'll hold your place in Acts chapter 9 and skip over to Acts chapter 22, it's here he gives his backstory before recounting his conversion. And in Acts chapter 22 and verse 3, he addressed this mob in Jerusalem. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being 
zealous for God as all of you are this day. Paul points to the fact that like this crowd who wants to kill him, he was motivated with zeal for God. Just like the people who are trying to take his life in this moment, that's how zealous he was for God before he was blinded by the light. His education under Gamaliel and his persecution of the church were manifestations of his zeal for his God. And this isn't the only place where he makes mention of zeal. Look over at Philippians chapter 3. It's in Philippians chapter 3 that in an effort to show the fallacy of works righteousness, Paul gives his religious resume. A resume that he prided himself on before becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in that resume, he said that he was circumcised on the eighth day. This is Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He defined his zeal for God not by how much of the Mosaic law he had memorized or by how many hours he spent at the synagogue or by how many times he prayed each day. He measured his zeal for God in terms of persecuting Christians. He's saying that this is how passionate I am for God. This is how devoted I am to God. I'm willing to defend God by killing those I find to be his opponents. And so the point is that Saul was unashamedly and enthusiastically zealous for his God. And I want you to understand something. Zeal in and of itself is a good thing. We're instructed by Paul in Romans chapter 12 and verse 11 to never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul implies that disciples are expected to be zealous for good works. And Peter echoes that sentiment in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 13 when he rhetorically asks, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good works? Zeal in and of itself is a good thing. It's an expectation that as disciples we will be zealous for Jesus. The problem with Saul's zeal is that it was misplaced. Look at what he said in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14 about that very zeal. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14. Paul said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Now, here we are in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. Paul makes a great confession here. Don't miss it. Because when he spoke of his zeal in Galatians chapter 1, and verse 14, he didn't say, so extremely zealous was I for God. No, he came to realize that his zeal 
was actually not for God. His zeal was for his traditions. That's why he disregarded the sanctity of life that is clearly present in God's Word. That's why he lacked grace and mercy in his dealings with people. See, Saul's zeal was misplaced. It had been put on the traditions of his fathers, not actually on his God as he thought. And here's what I want you to ponder this morning. I want you to ask yourself, what am I zealous for? Here's the thing about zeal. When you are zealous about something, you possess intimate knowledge of it. You can't stop talking about it. You, you invest your resources in it. You make sacrifices on its behalf. When you're zealous for something, it consumes you. For what are you zealous? Is it your hobby? Are you so zealous for your personal interest that you'll do anything to make it happen? You'll do anything to collect that item. You'll do anything to go have that experience. You'll do anything to support that team or that sport or that activity or that organization. You'll do anything for it. Yesterday tested some of your zeal. Rivalry day, right? Ben Hogan's wearing a tie today. A tie that he has claimed to me on numerous occasions he only wears when his team loses, but his team didn't lose yesterday. He's just that zealous today. I'm actually not dogging Ben today. He's got a baby due. I'm going to leave him alone. But we can be zealous for so many things. Are you zealous for some ideology? Are you zealous for some political platform? Are you zealous for some political party? Are you zealous for some political candidate? Are you zealous for something like that? It's not a bad thing to be zealous for teams. It's not a bad thing to be zealous about hobbies. It's not a bad thing to be zealous about your politics. Those aren't bad things. But here's the ultimate question. Is your zeal for those things greater than your zeal for God? Because then it's misplaced. If your zeal, if your, your zeal is not primarily for the one who saves you, then your zeal is misplaced. Do you care more about hunting and fishing and golf and sports or crafts and shopping and vacations than you do about the Lord? Then your zeal is misplaced. And Saul discovered that. He had to be blinded to learn that. But you know what? Jesus saw that zeal and Jesus could use that zeal. That's the zeal that when it was converted from the traditions of his fathers to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it became a powerful tool that he took around the world and led people to Christ. 
Does your zeal need to shift? Is it misplaced? Because Paul told us, as I've already read in Romans chapter 12, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. What I want us to understand today is that if your zeal is attached to anything other than Jesus, then it needs to be redirected, just like Saul. So I believe Saul was blinded to shift his devotion off the traditions of men and onto his Lord, Jesus. But I believe Saul was also blinded to teach him dependence. Prior to his conversion, Saul was the type of person that needed no one. He was the independent type, and I think this is reflected in the way he described himself prior to his conversion. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4, in that spiritual religious resume that I've talked about already, he said, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, Paul is being kind of facetious here, but that was his mentality before he was converted, that he has more reason for confidence in the flesh than anyone else. He believed that. He didn't need anyone. He was better than everyone. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13, he said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. He knew his success. In Paul's own words, he was the source of his own success. Not once does he, say, does he thank the Lord for his advancement in Judaism. Not once does he give credit to God for his confidence in the flesh? He was suffering from something I've started calling self-itis. I did a whole sermon on, on this term back in April, so all I want to do today is remind you of what I'm talking about. When I say someone is suffering from self-itis, I'm referring to a spiritual condition in which he or she glorifies himself or herself to the point of excluding or reducing or supplanting God. In other words, self-itis boils down to self-worship. And that's ultimately what Saul's mindset was prior to his conversion. And Jesus needed to show Saul that salvation and discipleship are not individual achievements. See, there are two things that happened to Saul after the blinding on the road to Damascus that I think are worth mentioning. The first is that he developed a thorn in the flesh. Now, he wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 and 8. You've heard about the thorn in the flesh. We even use that terminology today. But he says, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, scholars have debated what this thorn in the flesh might be for, you, for decades, and although it's impossible to say with certainty what it was, there is at least one leading candidate. And that leading candidate is poor eyesight. Here's why many believe poor eyesight was Saul's thorn in the flesh. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul reminded the churches of Galatia that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel 
to you at first. Two verses later, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 15, he said, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And that seems to imply that his ailment had something to do with his eyes. And then he concluded the letter of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 18, by saying, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. He does similar things in some other letters. He has his own uh, mark that he would put at the end, even though he may have used somebody else to pin the letter as he spoke. But he would sign it in some fashion with his own hand. And the fact that in Galatians chapter 6, in this letter where he mentions a bodily ailment, and he alludes to the fact that they were willing to gouge out their eyes and give them to him, he now says, look, I'm writing with large letters. And that seems to imply that he had to write large because he couldn't see that well. That's the basis for some people contending that his thorn in the flesh was poor eyesight. So it's entirely possible that Paul's eyesight was never fully restored after his conversion. And some form of vision impairment remained as a constant reminder of his encounter with Christ, of a constant reminder of his past as a persecutor, a constant reminder of his need for a Savior. See, before his conversion, before his conversion, Saul was independent. He could earn his salvation in his own eyes. He, he even, in that religious resume in Philippians chapter 3, declared himself blameless when it came to the law. If you're blameless when it comes to the law, do you need anyone to help save you? But this thorn in the flesh served as a constant reminder that he needed grace. See, if you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he identify, where he mentions this thorn in the flesh, he goes on to say, But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When he asked for this thorn in the flesh to be removed, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient. That's all you need, my grace. And so Paul indicates that this thorn in the flesh was a constant reminder that he needed the grace of his Lord, in order to endure it. And it's that same grace that is essential to our salvation, as Paul himself declared in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, when he wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Saul was so independent, so individualistic, that he at times acted as though he could save himself. And Jesus intervened to show him that he needed Jesus. He needed Jesus' grace. Because he couldn't do it on his own. So when you think about Saul's blindness, there's a sense in which he needed to learn that he is more dependent than he realized. That he needed 
Christ just like you and I do. But he didn't just need Jesus. He's going to learn that he needed the church. See, the one thing that happened after this conversion, he developed a thorn in the flesh. But there's another thing that happens. After his conversion, Saul couldn't do anything without the help of others. You notice immediately after he encounters the light, his companions have to escort him by hand into Damascus. He then had to rely on Ananias to baptize him, restore his sight, and tell him what God's mission was for him. He had to rely on his fellow disciples to get him safely out of the city of Damascus by lowering him out of a window in a basket. He had to rely on Barnabas to vouch for him when the rest of the church in Jerusalem refused to accept him. And he had to rely on his brothers in Jerusalem to protect him from an assassination attempt by escorting him safely to another town. The rest of Acts chapter 9 is Saul relying on other people. From that day forward, Paul was connected to, surrounded by, and working with other people. From that day forward, Paul understood that an inevitable byproduct of a relationship with Christ was a relationship with other believers. From that day forward, Paul learned that he needed the church's contribution in his own life. Do you understand that discipleship cannot be practiced in isolation? Do you really understand that? Because there's a lot of you who attempt it. And the pandemic has exposed that. There are far too many Christians who are trying to do discipleship, trying to follow Christ all on their own, in isolation, independent of the church. But that's not how God designed it. And Paul speaks to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in fact, over the past couple of years, I've referenced Paul's comparison of the church to a, to a body here in 1 Corinthians 12 on multiple occasions because I believe we're starting to really struggle with this appreciation of, this understanding of, and this requirement of membership in the body. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and look at, just look at verses 12 through 14 where Paul writes these words. The mighty Paul, who before his conversion didn't need any help, says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now did you hear that last verse? Paul said the body does not consist of one member, but of many. That means you do not make up the church by yourself. You have to be part of the body to be a part of the church. And that means, that means you have to be connected. That means you have to be attached. That means you have to be intertwined with other members of the body. Isolation is unacceptable when it comes to discipleship. And if that statement is not enough evidence for you, then look at verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul said, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 
What Paul is saying is that no member of the body can say that he or she is sufficient unto himself or herself. And the implication of this statement is that you are incomplete without your attachment to other members of the body. Interesting that one of the body parts he references is an eye. Maybe through his experience of blindness, he came to understand and appreciate the interconnectedness of a body more than ever. And so here's the point. Paul's experience showed him that he's not independent like he'd like to be. It actually showed him that he's quite dependent. And everyone, not just Paul, everyone needs two things. Everyone needs Jesus to save them, and everyone needs the body of Christ to surround them. And if you try to live and exist without either of these two things, then you're deceiving yourself into believing that you're spiritually okay. Saul was blinded so that he could learn to be dependent both on Jesus Christ for his grace and on the body of Christ for its contribution. Are you dependent on the same things? Or are you trying to operate independently? We love independence in our country, don't we? We pride ourselves on being independent. And that is a beautiful thing. If you were like me when you turned 16, you declared your independence, didn't you? Kids don't do that anymore. They turn 16 and they don't even care about getting their driver's license. This doesn't make sense to me. When I was 16, you got your license and you got out of the house as fast as you could. And while that might be an enjoyable, even good thing in the context of this world, that's not the way the church was designed. If you're trying to operate independently of Christ for your own salvation, or you're trying to operate independently of the church as a disciple, then you're blind to the reality of what Scripture teaches. And I encourage you to take another look. Because that's a lesson Saul had to learn when he was blinded on the road to Damascus. And I also believe he had to learn this, that he was blinded so that he could change his direction. One thing that's very interesting about Acts chapter 9, that's very unique about this chapter, is that we're introduced to a title that was used to identify Christ's disciples before they were called Christians. Now, you, the term Christian won't start being employed until Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, where the text says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That's two chapters away. So the official title of Christian wasn't employed yet, but there was another title in use at this time. And according to Acts chapter 9 and verse 2, that title was 
the way. This phrase will be employed six times in Acts. And every occasion, it's a reference to the disciples. Now, Paul acknowledged over in Acts 24 and verse 14 that the Jews viewed the way as a sect within Judaism. A sect is defined as a group regarded as heretical or as deviating from the generally accepted religious tradition. And it's identifiable because it's united by a specific doctrine or a doctrinal leader. Thus, it appears that early Christians received this title of the way because they were initially not viewed as a distinct faith system apart from Judaism, but rather adherents of a unique doctrine within Judaism, that being the doctrine that Jesus was the Messiah. And since their distinguishing doctrine was that Jesus was the Messiah, they likely inherited their title from his statement in John chapter 14 and verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's why I think this particular title for the church is so unique to Paul's story here in Acts chapter 9. I want you to look at what Acts chapter 9 and verse 3 says Paul was doing. It says that Saul was on his way to Damascus. To do what? To arrest any men or women that he found belonging to the way. So Saul was on his way to persecute the way. But then a bright light got in the way. Paul once referred to himself as a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. His description of himself as insolent caught my attention simply because that's not a term I use or even hear very often. In case you are unfamiliar with that term, it means showing a rude and arrogant lack of respect. Thus, thus Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, he calls out his own arrogance. You may have noticed that Saul kind of struggled with pride before his conversion. See, he, he talked about that thorn in the flesh. You remember that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? And he, he even said that that thorn in the flesh existed to keep him from becoming conceited. Saul struggled with pride, with vanity, with cockiness. I think Saul was the type of guy that was always right, that always knew what was best, that had a huge problem with taking orders. My impression of Saul before his conversion was that he was a my way or the highway kind of guy. But after his conversion, he became a different man. After his conversion, he's going to write Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 9, saying, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. In other words, it appears that he came away from his encounter with Christ 
a humbled man who no longer sought his own way, but pursued the way by denying himself, taking up his cross, and following Jesus. And here's the thing. Many of us, like Saul, need a radical shift in direction. We're traveling through this life thinking we can do things our way instead of the way. We pick and choose what commands of the Lord we're going to follow. We pick and choose what expectations we're going to meet. We're selective about discipleship. About three or four weeks ago, I can't remember exactly now, I started a medical weight loss program. It's time. I got to get rid of some of this. I got kids. I want to live past 42, which is February. So I, 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 want, I, I want to get healthy. The first thing I had to do was go in and meet with the doctor to go over what I can and can't eat. Basically, I can't eat anything. <laughs> At least anything enjoyable. They took away all the carbohydrates, no bread. I love bread. They took away all of the fruits because they are sugary. In addition to that, they took away everything sweet. Desserts, sweet tea, Coke. Everything I drink. They took away the starches, so, you know, no potatoes, no rice, no corn, those kind of things. My diet is designed to be strictly protein and strictly good vegetables. That first week was hard. Ask Ben or Jay, or anyone in the office for that matter. That first week was extraordinarily hard. And here's what I found myself doing this past week. Now, well, let me back up. I did, the first week was hard, but I did well. I lost some weight. I did well. First two weeks, I lost weight. My third week was Thanksgiving week. And I was traveling. So not only do I have a holiday meal, and I'm traveling, I'm away from my norm, and I'm away from my routine, but I'm also traveling back home. And you know when you go back home, there's all these restaurants you want to go back to because you don't get them anywhere else? So I decided, I was like, you know what? I've been successful for my first couple of weeks. I can manage this. I can do some cheating here and there. I'll make up for it on exercise. I'll make up for it by skipping a meal here or there. And I started picking and choosing how I was going to do this diet thing that I committed to. And you can guess what happened. Instead of going down, I went back up. And here's the point. 
I tried to choose my way instead of the healthy way last week. I thought I could eat healthy at this meal, eat unhealthy at this meal, and it would be all balanced out. I thought I could walk enough miles every day to counteract my bad decisions. I thought I knew what I could do to still be successful instead of following the doctor's orders. And I was absolutely wrong. And I think that's what Saul's experiencing here too. Some of us operate like him, thinking we can figure this out on our own and we can do it our way and we can, we can pick and choose what we're going to obey and what we're going to ignore, what we're going to implement and what we're going to leave out, what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. All when it comes to our spiritual lives. And we completely ignore the way. If that's you today, I want to encourage you to return to the way. Because it's, it's the only way. Jesus had to take some extraordinary measures with Saul to open his eyes to some realities in his life. More importantly, he had to take some extraordinary measures with Saul so that he could put Saul in active service for his kingdom. Here's something that I find incredibly uh, beautiful about the Acts 9 text as I pull this back up real quick. If you look at verse 15 of Acts chapter 9, as, as the Lord speaks to Ananias, he refers to Saul as his chosen instrument. That's ultimately what all of us are. God has called us his workmanship in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 and says that he's got a plan for us. He's got a purpose for us, and he's got these things he wants to achieve through us for his kingdom. But you've got to surrender in order for him to accomplish those things. And now I want you to look. One last passage in Acts chapter 9. Look down at verse 31. After informing us that Paul t boldly taught in Jerusalem but had to be sent to Tarsus because his opponents were trying to kill him, Luke summarizes the state of the church. Not the state of Paul, the state of the church in Luke chapter 9 and verse 31 saying, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. That's a description of the church after Saul joined it. Now, is that all Saul's doing? Probably not. But what can the Lord do for his kingdom, for the church, if you would join? What can the Lord do for his kingdom, for the church, 
if you'll change your direction. What can the Lord do for His kingdom or the church? If you'll shift your devotion. What can the Lord do for His kingdom for the church? If you, like Saul, will be dependent on Him and it. This morning as we're gathered here, we invite you to respond to the invitation. If you need to make a change in your life, if you need to become a child of God, if you need to repent, if you need our prayers, and if you need to, remake, if you need to respond in any way, then we invite you to come.